Hello and welcome to this episode of our Common Ground podcast, Beyond Aporia. I'm your host, Brian Smith. Our guest today comes to help us celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, Steve Luxenberg is a best-selling author whose most recent book, Separate, the story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation, has won numerous accolades and garnered some excellent reviews by individuals like Bob Woodward, a relatively famous uh, news reporter. I think a lot of people know him. Helps to have friends. Well, I'm sure that his review was not just totally based on friendship. It is an excellent book. Thank you so much for being here to talk Thanks to us today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Um, so, for my first question, uh, our Common Ground manager here, Jacob, is a big fan of a TV show called The Wire. Have you uh, have you heard of that show? I have heard of that show. I have actually have a little cameo appearance of about three seconds on that show. Wow. Um, so, yeah, how, how do you feel about their portrayal, I think season five, is it, of a... Uh, a Baltimore editor by the name of Steve Luxenberg. Do you feel like you were accurately portrayed? Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, it's funny. The Wire has gotten me more attention than any of my books. Oh, really? <laughs> so I need to keep it in the forefront of my uh, of, of my uh, biography. Put it at the top of your resume. You know, it's just a scene in a newsroom where the editor is giving bad news to the newsroom about the future of the paper. They're going to close some foreign bureaus. They're going to downsize. They're going to do more with less. We've all heard that before. Uh, and my job is to stand behind the main actors and shake my head. Disapprovingly. In, dis- like, uh... in, in disapprovingly, yeah. <laughs> I do it very well. I, I can reenact it on, tonight if you'd like. Oh, that'd be excellent, yeah. When we do the video of it, that, that'd be fantastic. I know Jacob would uh, love to see that as big a fan as he is. You know yeah. this episode? Uh, yeah, my brother was a, a big fan of the show, and when I let him know that you were coming, he told me about that. So. Okay, episode three. <laughs> all right. So uh, now that we've gotten the icebreaker out of the way there, I kind of want to move into the book, Plessy v. Ferguson. The Supreme Court is something you could write volumes, and people have written volumes and volumes about. They've had tons of controversial or impactful rulings from the beginning of our country. Um, Roe v. Wade, uh, the Citizens United case more recently, but even going back to, in the book you talk about the Dred Scott decision, or if we want to go all the way back to the beginning, Marbury versus Madison, what what in your background made you decide that Plessy Ferguson was a case that needed a lot more attention focused on it? Well, when I was a young guy, I read a book about a Supreme Court case called Gideon's Trumpet, written by then the New York Times Supreme Court reporter Anthony Lewis. It's about the case of Gideon versus Wainwright, which we know today as the reason why a, a indigent defendant would get uh, a lawyer in a criminal case. Uh, that that shouldn't be a, your, your economic status shouldn't be a bar to having effective counsel. And it was such a marvelous window on America. And I thought, as a young guy, someday I'd like to write a book like that. The Supreme Court seems to be a good way to write about the history of, of the country. So Lewis was probably in his 40s when he wrote that book. I waited until I was in my 60s to tackle my version of that. Uh, but I, I felt that after 40 years of being a journalist, uh, writing and editing stories that often were, had race as some sort of a component in it, it was a factor or a relevant factor in, in it, that I still didn't really understand the continuing persistent racial, racial divisions and disparities that we have in, in the United States. And so as I dug into that idea, it led me back to the 19th century and the history of racial separation as a 
a factor in that continuing and persistent disparity. So I wanted to understand that. And, you know, Plessy's been written about as a constitutional case, as a legal case, um, but I didn't think it had been written about as a story of the people who had been swept up in it and how their attitudes affected that case. And so I thought that was a, I'm a storyteller, so that was a good way to do a story. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the book is sort of the structure, um, the fact that we don't even talk about Plessy until, you know, the second act, the second half of the book. Um, you're focusing on people that, if we didn't know anything about the case, we might kind of go, who is this person? What made you decide that that was the style that you wanted to write the story in? Well, one of the uh, early decisions that I made was to delve into their backgrounds, the lawyer for Plessy, the justices who were on opposing sides, and there's only one dissenter. It was a seven-to-one case, so it's easy to write about the dissenter as a lone person. Originally, I did not have the words Plessy versus Ferguson in the subtitle. It is a uh, choice that we made as we were going to publication that has its pluses and minuses. Mm -hmm. One of the minuses is that people say you don't even get to Plessy until page 400. Uh, That was because I wasn't thinking of it as a Plessy book alone. I was thinking of it as a book that concentrates on the second part of the subtitle, which is the journey from slavery, the end of the Civil War, to segregation, Jim Crow in the South. And so that was the story I was telling, a broader story, a story with more sweep, not just a story about the case. And I just have to let, I hope, the introduction to the book tell you this is going to be a lot about America for the 50 years before Plessy as, as much as it is about the case itself. So you're right, we don't get to Plessy until page 400. Uh, and, and there have been some people who have noted that fact in their reviews on Amazon and other places. Um, so talking about sort of the journey from slavery to segregation before the Plessy-Ferguson case, uh, one of the cases that really leapt out to me was um, the case of Day versus the uh, Aero Steamboat in uh, Detroit, I believe, um, in which essentially the court ruled that a company is entitled to make reasonable rules that tell passengers where to sit, which to us, we go, yeah, of course, you know, we do it on the basis of economics all the time. That's, you know, first class on airplanes or on trains. What made you sort of see that as a precursor to what would kind of come later in terms of the separate but equal and um, having separate accommodation for passengers. Well, one of the writerly tricks that uh, you don't reveal uh, when you write a book sometimes is that a Supreme Court case has precedents that are cited. Plessy's no different. There are a string of precedents that are not explained, but that Justice Henry Billings Brown cites in his majority ruling. I decided that that was as good a guide to any except to separation in the 19th century. I wanted to know about all of those cases to see whether I thought that they were relevant. And it turns out that the case you cite, the Day versus Owen, Owen is the owner of the steamboat on the Detroit River that denies Day uh, a cabin, an indoor cabin for an overnight trip. And he refuses to sit outside, he and his wife, and they leave the, the, the steamboat in Sioux in 1855. Um, the 1858 case is decided. They lose that case at the Michigan Supreme Court on the grounds that you said that it was reasonable for the company to make its rules. 
And that's a very important part of the story, which is that for a half century before the Plessy case is decided, there are many lawsuits from many people who are resisting separation, but they are all grounded in company policies or customs. They're not grounded in laws. Plessy is one of the first cases, not the first, but one of the first cases in which a state has mandated by law what had been company or uh, custom before, company policy or custom. And so you can bring into the, the, the discussion something that didn't exist before the Civil War in the time of, of Day versus Own, which is the 14th Amendment passed after the Civil War, which provides equal protection and due process, among other things. And so the question is, since that 14th Amendment says the state shall, states shall make no laws abridging the rights of its citizens, does Louisiana law mandating uh, separate railroad cars in 1890, does that abridge the rights of its citizens? And because of the equal part of the law, that is, passengers shall be treated equally, blacks can't ride in the white car, whites can't ride in the black car, there was a cover for the idea that Yes, it was a discrimination, but it was equal discrimination, so therefore not unconstitutional. I think that's an interesting point that comes up is that we had essentially the idea that you could have separate accommodation, a separate discrimination, as long as it was equal. And of course, in practice, what we saw was that the accommodation was almost never equal. You know, the train cars. And the reason we're talking about this separate but equal ideas is that that's the way most of us identify Plessy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's synonymous with the separate but equal idea. It's overturned in 19, effectively overturned. It's not, the Supreme Court doesn't say we're, we are now I, I want to go into, I'll go yeah. into that later, yeah. Uh, but, but they overturned Plessy uh, in the Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954, and separate but equal enters the lexicon because that's the way the Supreme Court described it in Brown. Now, you notice that I used the term equal but separate before. Why reverse? Why, is it, why does the equal come first? Well, separate was kind of assumed. It was the equality that people were pushing. Well, if you're going to have separation, at least you should make it equal. So most of the laws said equal, but yes, separate. So I guess the question is, is that something that the, the Supreme Court, when they made the ruling that said you could have separate accommodation, was that something that they, they were just dodging? I mean, who who was going to determine whether or not something was equal? You know, they didn't exactly put into place an authority to say, yes, these train cars are equal. We've examined them, and they're effectively the same. Well, the Plessy team, now this is a case that comes out of New Orleans, which is very important to the story. Uh, a, group of, <laughs> a group of mixed-race Creoles of color, they called themselves, who had never been enslaved. Their parents had never been enslaved. Their grandparents... Most of them had never been enslaved. They, they're the, the engine behind this attempt to overturn the Louisiana law. And the, the Plessy team, led by a northern lawyer named Albion Turget, doesn't go after this question of whether the railroad cars are equal. And, and some historians and constitutional scholars have criticized them for not adopting that strategy. But it was, it was on purpose. Turget did not want to let separation stand. So he, he was worried that the Supreme Court would say, well, just make sure that those cars are truly equal. Make sure that access is truly equal and you can have separation. He wanted to defeat separation and so did his clients, the New Orleans Committee. So they, they did not not want to argue over whether the car was upholstered the same way or whether it was smelly and had smoke 
you know, is a smoking section, which most of the cars reserved for people of color, they were smoking sections in them, so they were definitely not the same, therefore perhaps not equal, although equal is a legal term. Whether you have a smoking section may not be a question you can, you can address. So I, I think that you can understand that they wanted to win this lawsuit. And it's very hard for us in the 21st century to understand the 19th, but just two things that I think are important to remember. First of all, the Supreme Court of the 19th century is nothing, let me emphasize that, nothing like the Supreme Court of today. When I hear on the radio that the Supreme Court is going to issue a ruling in whatever the case, I immediately, I don't know if you do this, uh, Brian, but I immediately think, so 5-4, <laughs> what's the division, is it, who's the swing vote? If you were, there was no radio to listen to in the 1890s, but if you were aware of the court, you would say, uh, you, would, you, you might say, well, they're not divided in that way. And I looked at the statistics. I did a, a study of what the court's rulings, uh, how did they fall? How many 5-4 decisions were there? In some terms, zero. Zero 5-4 decisions. No, not even any 6-3 decisions. Often there was a 7-2, sometimes a, an 8-1. Plus, it was 7-1 because one person, one justice didn't participate. So you don't have division. And, and why not? Well, because the court is basically, even though there are Democrats and Republicans, it's not an ideological court in the same way that it is today. The president didn't put on the court people to support an ideology. He put on people who gave favors, supported their party, you know, et cetera. They were all of the same ideology, essentially. They were all relatively wealthy. They were all people who had a view of property rights as being sacrosanct. And so if you're a lawyer trying to argue before the court, you've got to come up with an argument that's going to get you to a minimum 5-4 when you're facing a court, and this is the other important point. Plessy was not the first case that the court had decided on civil rights. It was probably six or seven down the line. And it had already staked out its view of the 14th Amendment, which is generally it didn't apply. Uh, they, they had a very narrow view of the 14th Amendment, that is a very narrow view of what equal protection and states' rights and, I mean, what uh, a due process meant. And instead, they were more caught up in the 10th Amendment, which is one that most people couldn't cite today, which is the amendment that says any rights not expressly given to Congress and the federal government are reserved to the states. And so they decided this case on that basis. This was a a Louisiana right to enact a law that would keep peace and order by separating the races. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to some of the um, prior cases that the Supreme Court had decided, I think the big one in this book, at least, was the Civil Rights Act of 1875, in which the dissenter from the Plessy case, who would later become known as the great dissenter because of just the quality of dissents that he wrote, John Harlan, looked at that question of former slaves being given freedom and then what did that entail and how he says that that's um it's not an empty vessel it comes with freedom comes with the inherent rights the same inherent rights that white people have which nowadays we would think why is that in the dissent you know it should have been common knowledge but wouldn't the ninth amendment already say what john harlan was saying that you know, yes, you have those, you have these rights. Well, I'm no expert on citizenship, but citizenship was a malleable concept in the 19th century. And uh, 
most people thought of themselves as citizens of their state first. States' rights wasn't code as it became in the 20th century for the South and how it wanted to do things its own way, Jim Crow, etc. Um, there were many people, there were, I, I read the, the uh, uh, writings of a Massachusetts, uh, a prominent Massachusetts guy who said, I am a citizen of Massachusetts first and a citizen of the United States second. Uh, and so, it, it, and, and why was that the case? Well, there's a great book that came out last year called The War Before the War by Andrew Del Banco. It's about the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And his argument is largely that that act triggered the Civil War because it cemented the division between the North and the South by making the North responsible for the South's system of slavery. That if a, if a fugitive uh, from their enslaved conditions went North, it was the North's responsibility to help the South get that. that now, there had been a previous uh, Fugitive Slave Act, but this one was even more onerous on the North. And there was a lot of, of uh, protest, uh, a lot of, uh, of standoffs, one here in Michigan that preceded the Fugitive Slave Act in 1847 in Marshall, Michigan, where Southern bounty hunters from Kentucky came to seize somebody they believed was a fugitive from slavery, and the Marshall citizenry rose up and said no. And the leader of that rebellion um, was sued in federal court by the Kentucky Bounty Hunters, another important case. And that guy, whose name is Charles Gorham, becomes the mentor for Henry Billings Brown as a young man in Detroit. Henry Billings Brown will later on become the justice who writes the Plessy decision. Uh, so you see how all of these things are knit together. That's why I decided to do the book in this way. You can't look at Henry Billings Brown in a vacuum. In, uh, if you were going to look at the two justices, Henry Billings Brown from Massachusetts and New England, who comes to Detroit, becomes a federal judge eventually, then gets on the court, and John Marshall Harlan of Kentucky, the Southerner, the dissenter, the great dissenter, if you looked at their resumes, at their backgrounds, at their young attitudes, you would believe that they would end up in the reverse positions in this case, that Harlan would be the more likely person to write the majority decision, Brown would be in the dissent. So how is it that they end up on, on the sides that they do? To me, as a writer, that contradiction is pure gold. You want to write about these kinds of people. You want to write about the evolution of John Harlan from a slaveholder's family, a pro-slavery candidate for Congress in 1859, to being the great dissenter. You want to write about Henry Brown, who wanted to make his mark on the world desperately. He wrote about it in his diaries, and he makes his mark on, on the world by writing one of the worst decisions that the Supreme Court is known for. Yeah, apart from maybe the Dred Scott decision, honestly. It, Harlan saw them in the same category. If you, it's fascinating to me. If you read Harlan's writings, um, he often brings up Dred Scott. Uh, and in the Plessy decision, in his dissent, he says, this case is a shameful one and will one day be known in the same category as Dred Scott. And in, in 1896, that would have been a meaningful thing to say. Uh, today, I think it's much harder to make clear just how, how uh, powerful that statement is. Dred Scott being the case that said blacks have no right to citizenship, no matter whether they're enslaved or not. Yeah. 1857. Yeah, no uh, rights that a white man is bound to. Yeah, although that, that phrase is an interesting one because it's written in the context of what Roger Taney, who wrote it, said no rights that a, a white man was bound to respect. Was, what he was saying was is that at the founding of the country, 
that's what the situation was. Now, I think Tawney was being quite uh, mindful that he was also talking about how he felt in 1857, but it's often uh, written, I find, as is bound to respect, no, as if it's present tense. I think I just quoted it that way, yeah. He didn't say it that way, but uh, st same, same meaning. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of um, look a little bit more at the Supreme Court as an institution with some of these uh, other questions. Um, so... In uh, 1849, another case in Massachusetts that you talk about, they, um, they essentially upheld something where the legislature had already overturned that law. And the court basically said, you know, yes, the precedent that we created is still in place even though the law was repealed because it was a bad law. Does that speak a little bit to the weakness of the courts that, you know, they often say... We're not going to decide. A lot of times when they refuse a case, they say we're not going to decide on this case. That's a matter for Congress or for the states to decide. But in, in a case like this, they just sort of ignore what the, because the state made it very clear that law was a bad law. But the precedent is, is still cited in Plessy Ferguson. So it, it kind of feels, do you see that as the Supreme Court wanting to have their cake and eat it too to say, you know, it's a matter for the legislature, but even though they've made this decision, we're going to change our minds. Well, Supreme Courts change. They evolve, too. And there are some that are quite intent on not getting involved in politics, for example. You hear that today, that if the impeachment matter, for some reason, would get into the, to the Supreme Court. You know, President Trump said at one point, I'm going to take this to the Supreme Court, as if he were able to just put himself on the Supreme Court's calendar. They don't want to get involved in politics. And in, in impeachment, you know, it's been made clear that this is a political matter to be decided by the House and the Senate. And yes, John Roberts is, is presiding over the, the, the trial in the Senate, but he's not really going to make any substantive rulings. It's sort of a ceremonial office. Yeah, and just decorum, to, right. help to keep decorum. I mean, he, he did that the very first night when he said, um, you know, remember that this is the world's most uh, important deliberative body. Uh, but I think that the Supreme Court is very mindful of public opinion. It, it, it probably comes as no surprise to you to know that there's no police force at the, at the Supreme Court. They can't go out, they can't send troops out to enforce their rulings, so they're really dependent on their credibility, and they don't want to squander that credibility. Uh, they were very mindful of it in the 19th century, and they even talked about it in, in public. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were a little looser in those days. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the book, very favorite scenes, is that that civil rights cases, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 that you that you talked about, they, they decided that in 1883, John Harlan was the only dissenter in that case as well. And uh, as he was writing his dissent, he felt a lot of pressure. He'd only been on the court for six years. He knew that it would be scrutinized. In fact, he was not, not only was he right, but it was, it was 14,000 words and it was widely published in many newspapers, the entire dissent. Uh, he filed it a month after the majority opinion, but he was having trouble writing it. And one of the things that he did was he contacted the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, not because of his position so much, but because that Senator Edmonds of Vermont had been involved in the writing of the 14th Amendment. And he, he asked to meet with Edmonds to understand what they were trying to get at when they wrote the 14th Amendment. Now, think about that. Can you imagine John Roberts calling up the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee and having an ex parte, a, a uh, private conversation. Seems much less likely nowadays. Yeah. 
There'd be, there'd be reporters that would catch wind. And, and Edmonds was not unmindful of this. He, he, he wrote a letter to, to Harlan in which he enclosed some materials, he said, and he said, due to the delicacy of, the, of our conversation, I, I will uh, refrain from making any further comments. Now, what did Harlan think of this? Well, he was so embarrassed, I'm joking, he was so embarrassed by this that he put it as the front page of a scrapbook that he kept on the civil rights decision. He was like a good author. He, he liked all of his notices, his reviews, and he made a scrapbook out of, out of the uh, newspaper articles that were written about the, the uh, at least his family made a scrapbook, I think it was him though, uh, out of the, uh, the reviews that he got after the, the dissent. So, you know, they're very mindful of, of, of public opinion. I don't think that they would weigh public opinion over here on the one hand and say, well, the law doesn't matter over here on the other hand. But one of the confusing things, but it's also, again, as a writer, you, you like these contradictions, I think. I like these contradictions. Is why was Henry Billings Brown cite cases from before the Civil War? I mean, that's, that's the, 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 the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments changed everything the about the Constitution. Yeah, so, so you can just re disregard anything about public accommodations before the Civil War, I would think. But in Brown's mind, well, he, the 14th Amendment didn't apply because. He was deciding it on the. They were deciding it on the basis of the of the states' rights part of the of the question, and so therefore I guess it was okay to go back to Day versus Owen, go back to some of these other cases, the Roberts case from Massachusetts, mm -hmm. um, which ruled that segregation in schools was okay until the legislature decided that it wasn't, uh, and so you know I, I I deal with that at the end of the book about that, those kinds of uh, of tensions over what the Supreme Court was doing when it, when it decided that. I mean, the Supreme Court is such an interesting body, and yet I bet you if we had a crowd of people, like I could do this tonight, I won't do it at, at the auditorium, uh, how many people can name more than a half a dozen Supreme Court cases? Mm -hmm. And I bet you that most people can't because we don't think about it that way. So they can name Roe v. Wade, they can name maybe Plessy versus Ferguson, although most people don't know much about it. Dred Scott, uh, Brown versus Board, Roe v. Wade, maybe some of the recent cases. Um, they probably would know Gideon, but they wouldn't know it by that name. They would just say, oh, that case where people got counsel when they're, when they're poor. My point is, is that there are a lot of important cases that people should know about. One of them I, that I like to cite is Sweat versus Painter. Sweat versus Painter, eight, uh, 1950. And this was a case that precedes Brown versus Board in which the court is getting toward overruling Plessy and says that when the University of Texas denied admission to Heman Sweat by building an entirely new law school just for him, that was not equal. Can somebody do that for me, though? I, I'd be okay with that. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't equal because it would never achieve the same size faculty, the same number of books in the library, the same quality of students. It would take generations before it would ever be equal. So good try, Texas, not working for us. Uh, and I think that's an important case because it's so easy to understand, I think, what was really happening there. Yeah, I, I like, you know, kind of discussing the, um, the fact that as we're getting towards the Brown v. Board of Education uh, much later, the Supreme Court, as we said earlier, has never actually overturned Plessy Ferguson. Technically speaking, as, as ruling on law, it remains more or less in force. Obviously, Brown v. Board of Education weakened it to the point where it's essentially overturned. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it remains in force as much as it, it's become uh, bypassed. It doesn't have any 
meaning anymore. But I'm not a constitutional lawyer, and maybe people could argue argue that. But you, know, you were going sort toward a question. I <laughs> to no, no, it's no problem. Um, we we are still seeing extensive situations of discrimination, especially in issues with like LGBTQ individuals. The case of the Colorado baker that made the cake or would not make a cake for a, a gay couple, as well as we're still seeing discrimination on the basis of race, on you know um, the basis of class. I think is probably the one that we see most commonly without ever thinking about it. If you don't have money, you're not going to be able to go to, into certain businesses. Is there a danger that Plessy could ever still be invoked in those cases? I don't think so. I, I think that the, the country wouldn't really stand for it. I mean, there were some people who, of course, there's always some people who would say, we'd be better off if we had separation. I, I don't want to have a conversation with those people a lot of the time. Um, but, but I, you know, it's, you, you, you raise a very important point about the, the uh, uh, gay rights and the whole movement about that, the, the Colorado cake baking case. It's important, I think, for all of us to know that there is always, always resistance to all Supreme Court decisions of any note. There was resistance to Brown versus Board. You know, we, we think of it today, oh, Brown versus Board, 1954, everything got, you know, everything was great after that, no, no more segregation. Well, we forget about Orville Faubus of Arkansas, the, the governor. Of uh, the governor of Alabama, George Wallace, standing in the schoolhouse doorways and saying, "No, I'm defying the Supreme Court." Uh, the Colorado cake baking case and other cases like it are itself a resistance to the Obergefell ruling. It's a different issue. They're raising religious freedom. That's the basis on which those cases are raised. But there are. I love this idea because it's all about the wedding industry. There are many facets of the wedding industry. Yes photographers and graphic artists and florists and cake bakers. And there are cases involving those vendors who refuse to, they will, they will sell, as the florist in Washington State says, she'll sell flowers to a gay couple, but she will not sell flowers for a gay wedding. It's against her religious beliefs, she says. And it, it's a complicated thing because these are individuals. They, are, they I think, are expressing themselves mm -hmm. the way they really feel and believe. But there's also a network of lawyers who are promoting these cases uh, is in Arizona, and which will offer their legal services if not take the case outright. And they were involved in the, in the Colorado cake baking case. So I think that's fascinating. Um, it, it, again, speaks to the idea of what, where does the Supreme Court's credibility come from? Are they ahead of the curve? Are they following the curve? Uh, I think that... Uh, you know, there will always be controversy about Supreme Court cases because they always deal with the, the toughest issues, eventually. They can, as you've noted before, they can dodge the tough issue. They can say, we're not going to deal with that, or the lower court needs to rule again on that. We're sending it back uh, for, for more, more uh, trial or more evidence. Um, but they are in the, you know, that's their job. They're in the forefront of, of the country's cultural and social and political upheavals. Do you see a comparison between Plessy and the, like the Colorado cake baking case in that it's it's a, it's a question of this is my private business I can cater you know however I want or I can create whatever separate accommodation I now, want this is for this is a this is a key point because the Supreme Court has never ruled and I don't think it ever will rule that we as individuals can't discriminate in some way we choose our friends we choose our church we choose our business etc. Um, but when the state is involved, 
it's a state law in Louisiana that raises the issue of is that constitutional when the individual is working for someone else and exercising, uh, you know, doing a discriminatory act, uh, is that legitimate? Uh, so in the 19th century, they hadn't gotten to the point yet where the idea that the state by either acting or not acting, you think of the civil rights suits that the federal government brings, they're often bringing those civil rights suits, the civil rights division of the Justice Department doesn't come into being in any form until the late 30s, and it doesn't become an official division until the late 40s. Um, these civil rights are saying you're, you're abridging the rights to vote, or you're, you need a Voting Rights Act to put some teeth into the enforcement of those, of those principles. Uh, the Supreme Court in, in the 19th century hadn't gotten to any of those questions yet. And so one of the arguments that Albion Trujet makes in, in, uh, in the Plessy case is, he, he's a good lawyer, even though he's not a good Supreme Court lawyer. He doesn't have much experience there. And he wants to bring them new questions because he, doesn't, he knows that if he brings them old questions, they're going to say, well, we already ruled on that. So he has to say to them, you're not interpreting the 14th Amendment in the way that it needs to be interpreted in this particular case. And one of the, 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 the hinges of that was the idea that Louisiana had made it a crime, a crime for a passenger to sit in the wrong car not made it a crime for the railroad to discriminate, but it made it a crime. It was, the burden was on the passenger. You sit in the wrong car and you will be arrested for a criminal act. And Terje said, how can that possibly be? In a criminal act, you need evidence, you need testimony, you need due process. No conductor moving down the aisle of a railroad car can possibly exercise due process. What are you doing here? Um, and it didn't work. It, didn't, it wasn't an effective argument, but you can see where the argument, that's a new argument, mm -hmm. because there never been a law criminalizing passenger travel. Uh, so that's why, that's why cases that seem to be in the same pew often are raising different questions when they come to the, when they come to the Supreme Court. So going back to specifically the Plessy-Ferguson case and Harlan's dissent, he talks about, and I, I love this phrase, I think it applies so well to the a lot of what our political bodies do, the willful ignorance of the court in regards to laws which treated African Americans as lesser citizens, I guess. It was that willful ignorance, obviously, creating these cases and what you said, sort of using things before the Civil War as though they still applied in the new world, as it were, after uh, that created the Jim Crow South. And it kind of goes to a, a long-standing question as to whether or not the Supreme Court should look at the Constitution and read laws exactly the way they're written, or whether in Harlan's case with the, uh, the Civil Rights Act where he actually went to the Senate Judiciary uh, individual and asked, what did you mean? What, was, what, was the, what is between the lines here that we don't see that really existed? So I guess the question is, uh, where do you fall in this debate between originalist versus living constitution. You know, I, I think that it often gets argued on the wrong uh, terms. I don't see that the word originalist has much meaning in a, in a constitution that itself is not the same, apart from whether the conditions in the country have changed. The constitution itself isn't the same anymore. You can't compare the constitution that had embedded in it the idea that uh, an enslaved person in the South was a three-fifths of a person, mm -hmm. a compromise that was intended to give the South more political power because they wanted to 
they wanted the, the their enslaved population to be counted as full people. For the purposes of, for, for right. the purpose of apportionment, but they had to settle for three fifths because the North wouldn't agree to that. That constitution it cannot be compared to the constitution that says one slavery is abolished, two that blacks have full citizenship rights, uh, and three voting rights. That's the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments. Uh, apart from the fourteenth. Creation of due process and equal protection uh, uh, provisions. So I, I don't think it's really a good argument to say, well, we can, we have to look at the way the Constitution was originally written. There is no original Constitution anymore. We have a Constitution that in 1964 banned poll taxes. We have a Constitution uh, that had an amendment as recently as the 25th, which regards you know the uh, incapacitation of the president, etc. So I think that. Yes, you should read the, the laws the way they're written, and then we get to the, 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 the clauses the way they're written, and then we get to the question that you just raised, well, what did they mean by that? Uh, it seems pretty clear to us, probably inaccurately, that when you say the state shall make no law abridging the rights of its citizens, that the Louisiana law would apply, right? It doesn't say anything about equal. It just says it shall make no law abridging the rights. Well, the question, of course, hangs on, does it abridge your rights? if you're forced to go into another car. And this is where Harlan, you, you like the phrase willful, willful ignorance. Harlan is very strong on this question. He calls this a thin disguise, a thin disguise. He's not even talking about whether the conditions of the cars are equal. He's saying nobody cares about the, sending the white people to the, to, to the white car. We're sending the black people to the black car because we want them out of the white people's way. We want them out of their sight. This is the thin disguise, and we're, we're fooling ourselves if we think anything else. We know what the Louisiana legislature was doing. He also thought it was a thin disguise to suggest that these were individuals or corporations who were acting in a private way. He, he repeatedly says in his dissent, this is a public highway built with public money, often on public rights of way. The public is responsible for the railroad system, and it is there for the public's use. It is not there for private use. You can argue about that, but that was Harlan's view, and it was a very strong one. So for my last question, uh, kind of think a little more philosophically, we're all, I think, Northerners here, and we tend to view the North during the Civil War and, frankly, all the way through today as uh, sort of the bastion of freedom and equality, and we're the place that the Underground Railroad was bringing slaves that had escaped from their masters you know, to, to freedom. Yet, in the book and uh, in what you talk about the precedents that were cited in regards to Plessy Ferguson, it seems like most of the precedents that they cited were cases in the North. I mean, we're talking about Massachusetts, we're talking about Detroit, you know, we're talking about Pennsylvania, these, these sort of northern areas in which we like to think of ourselves as we've always been the defenders, the champions of liberty and freedom for inequality for everybody. How do we reconcile that? It's, it's such a juxtaposition to what we would expect that when it came to a case in Louisiana, they used as their bedrock Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. Well, this is the, uh, this is the point I'm going to make tonight about how we're our history is filled with convenient narratives, but not necessarily accurate narratives. Uh, we like that narrative, we in the North, that we're the good guys and the South is the bad guys. Uh, it does not take into account not only the things that you uh, referred to, but just the conditions. 
So let's go back to 1840 at the dawn of the railroad age, which is where I begin the book. And I begin there because I think it's important to understand that this is a book about public accommodations as much as anything else. And you have a revolution. It's the cell phone of the 1840s, the, the railroad. The idea that you can get on a train, it's not moving very fast and it smells terribly. 10 miles an hour. <laughs> right. But it's, it's not outdoors. It gets you there faster. And it's going to, of course, pick up, you know, like the law about silicon chips, you know that railroads are going to improve as time goes along. But this asks the question, where do I sit? Where, who, with whom do I sit? Uh, this question doesn't get asked before that very often because stagecoaches are too small, horsebacks are individual, etc. Um, and in the South, meanwhile, not only are they lagging in railroad construction, and that construction that is occurring there, who are the work who are doing the work? Well, people who are enslaved. Uh, they're not riding the trains except in the company of their masters, and the masters are not sending them to a separate car. It's only in the free, but as I write in the book, the free and conflicted north that you have this question. Uh, and three railroads in Massachusetts out of eight decide that they're going to uh, separate their passengers, and it doesn't last very long, about five years before various events make it unwieldy and, and uh, public opinion turns on, on this. Um, but it doesn't remove separation as a, as a factor of northern life. As you point out, it continues in New York City um, on streetcars, it continues in Philadelphia on railroad trains after the Civil War, after the 14th Amendment. It continues in, uh, in many places throughout the North. And, and all of this is undergirded by violence, violence against people of color, violence that is first in the form uh, of, uh, of beatings and assaults and then in the form of, of organized lynchings that continue into the 20th century. And so the idea of resisting separation, resisting separation requires a great amount of, of courage, I think, to stand up and say, I'm not going to take this, and to know that it might happen that you are subject to the lash or the gun as... Frederick Douglass said in, in, in one of his most famous speeches in 1876. And, you know, we, today we talk about Plessy and other cases that are associated with it as if it's an abstraction almost. It's like, well, what, what about the principle of this and what about the conditions of the cars? But imagine living in 1870 and 1880 and you're just trying to survive as a black person. You're just trying to get along. And there is the Ku Klux Klan, and there's the white supremacist movement, and you are not thinking about whether your railroad car is equal. That's just not your first order of business. And so I think that's what I was trying to bring. That the, I wanted you to live in the 19th century in this book. I wanted you to feel what it felt like to live then. I wanted you to see it through the eyes of the people who, who lived this, this era. And uh, that's, that's the way I see it. So this idea of... I love to talk about originalists versus living constitutions, but that's not the story I was writing. I was writing a, a living story about people who were struggling to survive and who saw the courts as, as a relief valve. I mean, the, one of the most important names in the book is a guy named David Ruggles. Why should we know who he is? Because he's the first black man to bring a suit about public, public accommodations in a Massachusetts court in 1841. And it's on his shoulders that people stand. Uh, you know, no, nobody gets along here without help from somebody else. And I was always surprised, but then I stopped being surprised, that usually if you did a little digging, William Howard Day on that steamboat in Michigan was not a lone guy 
with his life. He was an abolitionist who was traveling back and forth between the, the colony that had been established in Chatham, Ontario, that St. Catharines, Ch Chatham, Ontario, and, and the United States. And he had, a, he had a group of people behind him, and he would write to people who were abolitionists, white abolitionists, and say, could you give me some money for my legal case? So these people do it on the backs of other people. Well, I think in regards to the book, you do an excellent job of, of really putting people into that time period. Um, it's just one of the easiest reads I've ever had about a Supreme Court case. So I think you... you Even though you don't get to page 400? Well, I mean, there are quite a few other cases yeah. before we get to that. And you even deal with the Civil well, War. Supreme which Court is, cases never exist in a vacuum. Right. And, and so I wanted to fill up that space with the story as it was lived and told and you know, there's a reason why we tell stories in a linear way. Something happens, and then something affects that, and then something affects that. To, to rip Plessy out of its time period and just write about it as if it's a, a lone case would be a mistake, I think. Right. And I think it's a mistake that a lot of academic institutions make when they talk about Plessy Ferguson. They simply lay out what happened and say, this is it. But through this book, we get to see all of the characters, regardless of how obscure they might be appear to us today so I I can't I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming in here and how much we're looking well, I, forward I to I feel honored to be here hearing the rest of your talk tonight thank right. you so much thanks for having me Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hallenstein Center's Common Ground Initiative at Grand Valley State University the director of the Hallenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. I've been your host, Brian Smith. The Center is inspired by Ralph Hallenstein's life of service and leadership. For more information, visit us at gbsu.edu hc or look us up on Facebook.